Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 16th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner as we take a look at today's top stories. Trump prepares to launch a 2024 White House run. Walmart agrees to a $3.1 billion opioid settlement framework. The Ukraine war spills into Poland and kills two. The G20 summit opens in Bali. The world population reportedly reaches 8 billion. The U.S. will open an investigation into Israel's killing of a journalist. Trump defies a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Giuliani won't face charges in his Ukraine lobbying probe. Hobbs projected to defeat Lake for Arizona governor. And Djokovic to be granted a visa for the Australian Open. In our top story, Trump prepares to launch his 2024 White House run. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, CNN, Business Insider, Independent, and Wall Street Journal. On the heels of a disappointing midterm election for Republicans, and despite advice that he postpone until after the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff in December, former President Donald Trump was expected to announce a third presidential bid last night from his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Though Trump reportedly retains grassroots support from Republicans, some of the party's largest donors have allegedly been meeting with other potential presidential contenders in the wake of multiple failed Trump-endorsed midterm candidates. Former GOP Trump allies have also been on record showing opposition to his potential third White House run, with Senator Lindsey Graham declining to comment until after the Georgia runoff. Former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany suggesting support for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Representative Mo Brooks outright calling him incompetent. While some of the party have expressed concern that the announcement may hurt Republican candidate Herschel Walker in the Georgia runoff, other GOP lawmakers, such as in Utah and Michigan, have openly petitioned for DeSantis. Trump has fired back at his detractors, blaming party leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell for the midterm losses and charging DeSantis with being an average Republican governor with great public relations. Aides say Trump's early announcement is an effort to shift the focus away from the 2022 midterms and toward 2024. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are some narrative spins, starting with the pro-Trump narrative from American Thinker. The elitist GOP establishment is turning its back on Trump in favor of a more gentle nominee at a time when a strong candidate like Trump is needed. The former president's so-called egotistic manner isn't bringing the party down. It's what saved it from collapse in the first place and is still needed in the future. And New York Post gives us a Republican narrative. Let's not forget that Trump has never won a majority of national support, not even in 2016. After his abysmal showcase of midterm endorsements, followed by his attack on DeSantis, he's no longer the party leader. Though it would be very difficult for the GOP to kick him to the curb, Republican voters can and will do just that when it's time to decide on their 2024 candidate. Don't look now, but there's a Democratic narrative on this story as well coming from Daily Kos. After a predicted red wave failed to transpire in the recent midterms, the GOP has turned to vicious infighting in an attempt to saddle someone with the blame, and Trump is the perfect candidate to take on this role. Despite a tight grip on the GOP for the last six years, the party tipped into chaos is now trying to disentangle from the former president, but it won't be enough to escape the impending Republican civil war. You know, it seems like up until this point, the pro-Trump narratives and the Republican narratives were pretty much one and the same. 
But man, there is a yeah. stark contrast between these two today. It is, I mean, it kind of speaks to the story that it there does. these narrative. It, the story is that these narratives have split right uh, for so long, and uh, it does seem like that Democratic narratives having fun with it. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Walmart agrees to a $3.1 billion opioid settlement framework. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Financial Times, and Forbes. Arkansas headquartered retail giant Walmart Incorporated announced on Tuesday a plan to pay $3.1 billion to settle lawsuits filed by state and local governments over the opioid epidemic in the United States. This comes as 17 states, along with multiple cities and Native American tribes, have accused Walmart of recklessly distributing painkillers despite concerns, creating and fueling the opioid epidemic. Similar to pharmacy chains CVS Health Corporation and Walgreens Boots Alliance Incorporated, which agreed earlier this month to pay about $5 billion each to settle the disputes, Walmart hasn't admitted to any wrongdoings in its deal. This framework was negotiated with more than a dozen state attorneys general. It will resolve virtually all opioid lawsuits and potential lawsuits against the company if it meets the conditions of a total of 43 states. If this $3.1 billion proposal is indeed agreed upon, Walmart would reportedly pay most of it within a year while being subject to robust oversight to prevent fraudulent prescriptions in the future. According to CDC data, 109,000 people are believed to have died of an overdose in the U.S. last year, of which nearly 81,000 died from opioids. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl were involved in more than 71,000 of these deaths. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Two spins emerging, beginning with an establishment critical narrative being provided by New York Times. Pharmacy chains have finally agreed to pay for their guilt in this public health disaster that has claimed the lives of thousands of Americans. While they've long alleged that their pharmacists were only filling doctor-ordered prescriptions, it's evident that these companies were strictly focused on profiting and showed no social conscience in the face of the tragic opioid epidemic. And Walmart's corporate website provides the pro-establishment narrative. While not responsible for this crisis, Walmart has taken decisive steps to support affected communities across the U.S. much faster than any other nationwide settlement to date. In addition, it has empowered pharmacists and engaged in educating patients about opioid abuse, while also advocating for state and national policies to prevent its abuse and misuse. Turning our attention to day 265 with the crisis in Ukraine as rockets strike Poland and Zelensky issues a formula for peace. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Pravda, Associated Press, Reuters, MSN, and Washington Post. Poland's Bureau of National Security convened an emergency meeting on Tuesday night following reports that two people were killed after missiles landed near the country's border with Ukraine. It comes as Moscow reportedly launched dozens of missiles at targets across Ukraine, marking one of its biggest barrages since the start of the war. Russia has dismissed reports that it's to blame for the rockets that struck Poland as a, quote, deliberate provocation aimed at escalation, and who fired the missiles remains unclear. Meanwhile, as the G20 summit kicked off in Indonesia on Tuesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose country isn't a member of the group, addressed the leaders virtually. He issued a 10-point formula for peace, 
while insisting that fighting must continue to, quote, in order to liberate our entire land from the Russians. He continued, quote, if the victory will be ours in any case, and we are sure of it, then should we not try to implement our formula for peace to save thousands of lives and protect the world from further destabilization? His propositions were the improvement of radiation and nuclear safety, food security, and energy security, the release of all prisoners and deportees, implementation of the UN Charter and restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity, withdrawal of Russian troops, and cessation of hostilities, as well as justice, immediate protection of the environment from ecocide, the prevention of escalation, and confirmation of the end of the war. Meanwhile, although a number of G20 countries remain divided over elements of Russia's war in Ukraine, a draft statement seen by journalists, which will reportedly be released at the end of the summit, will communicate that, quote, most countries deplore, in the strongest terms, the aggression by the Russian Federation and demand its complete and unconditional withdrawal from the territory of Ukraine. In the meantime, Matilda Bogner, head of the UN's Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, or OHCHR, said on Tuesday that her office has concluded that both Russia and Ukraine have tortured prisoners of war during the conflict, after conducting interviews with prisoners released from both countries. Elsewhere, both U.S. and Russia confirmed on Monday that their top spy chiefs, CIA Director Bill Burns and Sergei Naryshkin, Director of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, have met in Turkey for their first face-to-face -face talks since the war began. The White House said Burns was, quote, not conducting negotiations of any kind, but held talks to manage the risks of nuclear weapons. On the ground, Russian attacks were reported in at least six major cities, including the capital of Kyiv, Kharkiv in the east, and Lviv in the west, in what has been one of Russia's biggest strikes yet. According to Zelensky, at least 90 missiles were fired, with 70 intercepted, and they appeared to target critical energy infrastructure, leaving much of the country without electricity. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this long-running story from the Associated Press. Although some countries aren't demonstrating their opposition to the Kremlin too publicly, in order to avoid being caught in the middle of tensions between the U.S. and Russia, the G20 statement will demonstrate that most countries condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine and that Moscow will continue to face isolation until it completely withdraws from the country. And we have a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Western diplomats have made efforts to sneak language into the G20 draft statement suggesting that the whole of the group, including Russia, opposes the war in Ukraine. However, Moscow has ensured that its perspective is well reflected in the text and that the statement accurately reflects the varied views on the special operation of the broad range of countries in the G20. We've got a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story, and it comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. They're saying there is a 2% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before 2023. The G20 summit opens in Bali. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsbud, DW, BBC News, Reuters, Financial Times, and The National News. The annual Group of 20, or G20, summit opened on Tuesday in Bali, Indonesia, under the theme, Recovering Together, Growing Stronger. Amid global economic challenges such as food and energy insecurity and the Ukraine war. Opening the summit of the world's largest economies, Indonesian president and summit host, Joko Widodo called for an end to the Ukraine war and efforts to achieve an inclusive global recovery. 
The G20, Widodo said, must not descend into another Cold War. Via video stream, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called on his counterparts to end Russia's destructive war and advocated for an extension of the UN-brokered Black Sea Grains Initiative set to expire on November 19th. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who is attending the summit in place of President Vladimir Putin, has claimed Kyiv is prolonging the conflict in Ukraine by not listening to Western advice and also dismissed attempts to condemn Russia's invasion as unwarranted politicization by Western countries. A U.S. official reportedly said that the U.S. expected Russia to be criticized over the impact of the conflict on the global economy. A draft communique agreed to by G20 delegates on Monday says most members condemn the war in Ukraine, stressing that it has exacerbated the world economy's fragility. The document's final version is expected to be adopted by leaders on Wednesday, the summit's second and final day. Meanwhile, Chinese President Xi Jinping called on the G20 to avoid weaponizing food and energy, with Xi and French President Emmanuel Macron reiterating that the use of nuclear weapons must be prevented. Xi also called for joint efforts to combat global inflation. Those were the facts, and we have three spins from this story. It is an establishment critical narrative that starts us out coming from the Global Times. The G20 summit reflects the emergence of a new multipolar world order, which is why the U.S., despite its fabricated claims of wanting to cooperate, won't succeed in exploiting the summit to impede the rise of China. The Global South's new self-confidence is evident, and the West will not be able to convince the rest of the world to abide by its hypocritical mandates at this summit. DW provides the pro-establishment narrative. As evinced by the recent positive talks between Xi and Biden, the U.S. is making an impressive comeback on the world stage. Russia is coming under increasing pressure over its brutal war of aggression, especially as China apparently now sees a serious threat in Moscow's nuclear rhetoric. These are positive signs that pressure will jointly be increased on Russia, forcing it to end the war and allowing the rules-based world order to once again contribute to the well-being of humanity. And according to our favorite community of nerds, there is a 98% chance that Russia will be the most sanctioned country in the world by February 22nd, 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. And more global news, as the UN has determined the world population has reached 8 billion people. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, We Forum, and St. Kitts Nevis Observer. According to UN estimates, the global population reached 8 billion on Tuesday, a milestone in human development before birth rates are predicted to slow. It means 1 billion people have been added to the world's population in only 12 years. Despite the new high, the report noted that population growth is at its slowest pace since 1950 and fell under 1% in 2020. According to the UN, the global population could reach 8.5 billion in 2030 and 9.7 billion in 2050, before peaking at 10.4 billion during the 2080s and remaining at that level until 2100. While reaching 8 billion people is a sign of human success, the UN warned it could pose a risk for areas already facing resource scarcity due to climate change. The UN says the growth is largely due to longer life expectancy, thanks to advancements in public health, nutrition, hygiene, and healthcare. Over half of the global population lives in only seven countries, China, India, the US, Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Brazil, with India projected to surpass China 
as the world's most populated country in 2023. Meanwhile, the UN expects five nations in sub-Saharan Africa to contribute to more than half of the next billion, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Tanzania. Narrative A on this story comes from CNBC. The issue of concern in this report is the slowing pace of growth that, if left unchecked, will snowball into a population collapse disaster. Despite popular rhetoric, overpopulation isn't the threat. Stagnating birth rates, which don't just represent a crisis for a specific country, but are an existential threat to the entire planet, are. Thank you, Scott. Narrative B coming from Wired. There's a lack of consensus that stagnated birth rates pose an existential threat to the planet. There are now 8 billion people and counting on Earth, and there likely won't be a population collapse anytime soon. Besides, slowing population growth would actually bring a myriad of economic and environmental benefits in a world struggling with the threat of climate change. This statistics-based story has a statistics-based nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that if the human population declines to fewer than 100 million people, it would take 902 years to recover to above 1 billion people again. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Now, that is an ultra-nerd prediction. Yeah, that's super nerd. Yeah. yeah. There are some of the nerds <laughs> at Metaculous who are like, guys, we've taken yeah. it too far. Yeah, yeah bo- borderline nerds. But this is a super nerd narrative. Yeah. I'm going to call this a dweeb narrative. I think, I, would, I think it has reached the dweeb level. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these nerds need to, they need to take revenge on some of these other nerds because that's right. Yeah. Some of of these nerds are giving wedgies to other nerds at this point. Yeah. (laughs) The U.S. will open an investigation into the killing of Abu Akleh. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, NPR Online News, ABC News, and The Guardian. On Monday, Israeli officials announced that the U.S. has outlined plans to open its own investigation into the death of Al Jazeera journalist. Shireen Abu Akleh, who was killed in May while covering a raid in the West Bank city of Jenin. Palestinian officials, Abu Akleh's family, and Al Jazeera accuse Israel of intentionally killing Abu Akleh, who was wearing a helmet and a vest that said press when she was shot. The FBI investigation will come after months of pressure from Abu Akleh's family and U.S. lawmakers who were disappointed with the State Department's previous inconclusive findings and the Israeli military investigation. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, has denounced the inquiry and called it an interference in Israel's internal affairs, saying that the country will stand behind the Israeli Defense Force, or IDF's, previous investigation. The IDF initially blamed Palestinian gunfire for Abu Akleh's death before admitting in September that one of its soldiers had likely accidentally shot her, but that no legal action would be taken. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And there are two spins that have emerged. A pro-Israel spin is the first one, and it's being provided by Times of Israel. While tragic, Abu Akleh's death wasn't deliberate, as found by multiple investigations. The IDF's probe, which included the U.S., thoroughly investigated the incident, while critics of Israel have been quick to jump to conclusions. The FBI's investigation will only waste time and damage the alliance between the two countries. And Al Jazeera brings the pro-Palestine narrative. The fact that the U.S. is now launching an official investigation into Shireen Abu Akleh's death means that it likely has credible evidence that a crime was committed. This long-overdue probe is an important step toward accountability for the frequent and relentless Israeli human rights abuses. 
I'm surprised that these press folks that are right in the middle of the fighting don't get injured more often. It seems like they're right in the middle of these things and there's, you know, bullets flying. This is a horrible tragedy. It just feels like this might happen more often. Well, from what I hear, there's a new Uber service coming out of Rome called the Pope Mobile, and uh, you can rent those things. (laughs) I would love if if they if the Catholic Church wants a donation from me. Listen, you name the price. If I can take that Pope Mobile for a spin, then you got it. I'm in. You're in. The January 6th committee making the news as Trump defies his subpoena. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN. NBC, Fox News, and Independent. According to a joint statement released by January 6th Committee Chair Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, and co-chair Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, former President Trump failed to attend his deposition testimony, defying a subpoena issued in October compelling him to give evidence on or near November 14th. Thompson and Cheney stated that the committee will, quote, evaluate the next steps regarding the former president's noncompliance. Trump sued the committee on November 11th to challenge the subpoena, according to filings in a federal court in Florida. He asked the court on Friday to block the enforcement of the subpoena, which, alongside a deposition, demanded the former president hand over records of any communications he may have had regarding groups involved in the Capitol riots. As part of the lawsuit, Trump described the subpoena as, quote, invalid, arguing that the committee did not issue the subpoena to further a valid legislative purpose, and it violates both executive privilege and the former president's First Amendment rights. While the Department of Justice has sought indictments against two former Trump aides, Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro, for also defying the committee's subpoenas, prosecutors may not seek similar approaches against an ex-president under current circumstances. All right. Thanks for the facts on this political story, Eric. Unsurprisingly, we have some political narratives. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from The Guardian. Trump is facing mounting pressure from the January 6th committee, as well as the GOP following lackluster midterm results. While Trump may throw his hat into the 2024 ring, he is a divisive force that may split the Republican Party. And Breitbart gives us a pro-Trump narrative. Trump is looking extremely strong in the polls. While Democrats brand Trump and the MAGA movement deplorable as they seek to attack the former president, we should remember that they also urged witch hunts against Trump and his supporters. Never underestimate the former president. And we've got a nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says there's a 16% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. More political news as Rudy Giuliani won't face charges in the Ukraine lobbying probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Daily Mail, NBC News, and The Washington Post. Federal prosecutors in New York on Monday filed a brief letter in a U.S. district court stating that Rudy Giuliani, ex-personal lawyer to former President Trump, would face no criminal charges in a three-year grand jury investigation of his alleged lobbying efforts in Ukraine based on information currently available to the government. In response to the news, Giuliani tweeted, complete and total vindication, while his attorney, Robert Costello, said he wasn't surprised there were no charges because there was no evidence that he did anything wrong. Prosecutors had attempted to determine if Giuliani's dealings with contacts in Ukraine leading up to the 2020 presidential election violated the law because he didn't register as a foreign agent. As part of the investigation, 16 devices belonging to Giuliani and his employees 
were seized at his home during an FBI search in April of 2021. The former New York mayor's interactions with Ukrainians were part of the case made against Trump when the Democrat-controlled House impeached him in early 2020. Trump, who the Senate acquitted, was alleged to have been pressuring Ukraine to find damaging information on Joe Biden. Prosecutors in Georgia are still looking into Giuliani's alleged role in interfering with the 2020 election and the certification of the results. He was subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury in August. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And the Wall Street Journal gives us the first spin. It's a Republican narrative. The Democratic witch hunt that failed to convict Trump during his first impeachment has now come up short in its pursuit of punishing Giuliani for something he didn't do. He maintained his innocence throughout this baseless investigation, and now he's been vindicated. And the Democratic narrative comes from CBS. Giuliani shouldn't be boasting about barely escaping this tight legal bind. Evidence shows he did some disreputable things on behalf of Trump and Ukraine. A Republican-led Senate let Trump off the hook, but we don't know if Giuliani has been exonerated or was let off on a technicality because prosecutors haven't commented on this filing. And in more U.S. midterms news, Hobbs projected to defeat Lake for Arizona governor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, USA Today, Arizona Central, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, and New York Times. With 98% of expected votes counted as of Monday overnight, Arizona's Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs is projected to become the state's next governor as she leads by a 0.8-point margin over Republican Kari Lake. Hobbs, who ran on a platform that included abortion rights and increasing teacher salaries, will be the first Democrat to hold Arizona's top office since Janet Napolitano resigned in 2009 to work in the Obama administration. Official results, however, could be delayed until late December if the final margin between the two candidates is below half a percentage point. A new state law, with bipartisan support, expanded the threshold for automatic recounts. This has been one of the most closely followed contests in the 2022 midterm elections as Lake has become a prominent ally of former President Donald Trump, echoing his highly controversial claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged and voicing concerns over election integrity. Lake didn't concede defeat after the race was called on Monday night, tweeting that Arizonans know BS when they see it instead. Arizona has been at the center of the 2020 presidential election controversy since Joe Biden won the state by around 10,000 votes, and its governor is empowered to give final approval to the certification of the winner of the presidential election there and appoint presidential electors. The Democratic narrative is brought to us by BNN Bloomberg. U.S. voters have sent a clear and strong message to election deniers in these midterm elections. This is even more meaningful in Arizona, which was a hotbed of dangerous denialism this year. Kari Lake was defeated in the gubernatorial race, Blake Masters failed to become senator, and Mark Fincham wasn't elected secretary of state. And the Washington Examiner gives us a Republican narrative. It may be time for a pivot away from Trump and his allies. Kari Lake and Senate nominee Blake Masters underperformed compared to other GOP candidates in the state, including State Treasury Kimberly Yee, who ran against Lake in the primary for governor. Arizona may benefit from the surging success of Ron DeSantis in Florida. We've got a pro-Trump narrative from One American News. It's utterly unfair that establishment GOP lobbyists and politicians who are bragging about the election quickly blame Trump for the poorer-than-expected results. If they had comprehensively analyzed this election, they would realize that turning on Trump is counterproductive. 
More needs to be done to enhance outreach to small donors and voters. And we do have a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that the next U.S. presidential election will also be considered fraudulent by the losing party, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Tennis champ Djokovic to be granted a visa for the Australian Open. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bleacher Report, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, ESPN, and The Washington Post. After being deported in January due to his unvaccinated status, Australia will reportedly overturn tennis star Novak Djokovic's three-year ban and grant him a new visa to play in the 2023 Australian Open. After winning the ATP Finals in Turin, Italy Monday night, the Serbian tennis champion told reporters that his team is communicating with the government of Australia, with Australian Open director Craig Tilley also alluding to Djokovic's return. In January, Djokovic spent 11 days in Australia, believing that the immunity from his previous COVID infection would allow him to stay in the country. However, he was deported after a court upheld then-immigration minister Alex Hawke's decision to cancel his visa. Australia has since had a change in administration, and starting from July 6 of this year, incoming travelers are no longer required to show proof of vaccination. Under new immigration guidelines, travelers previously denied entry must show that there are, quote, compassionate or compelling circumstances, end quote, to have their re-entry ban dismissed and a visa granted. The nine-time Australian Open champion also didn't play at this year's U.S. Open due to rules surrounding unvaccinated non-citizens, though he did win his seventh Wimbledon title in England in July. Though Open director Tilly said he doesn't believe there should be any preferential treatment for anyone, if granted a visa, Djokovic will have an opportunity to claim his record-tying 22nd major championship and 10th Australian Open title, which is scheduled to begin on January 16th. Those were the facts, and we have two final spins for this podcast, beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from Tennis Buzz. Djokovic has been too nice to the Australian government after they treated him like a pariah. Although it will be great to see one of the world's greatest players back on the court, Australia should forever feel ashamed for detaining him like a criminal, simply for exercising his right to bodily autonomy. And there's a pro-establishment narrative from The Atlantic. At the time, Djokovic was treated appropriately by the Australian government, given the pandemic circumstances and his actions. Not only was the government enforcing its clearly stated vaccination rules, but Djokovic was caught lying about having visited other countries before arriving. Times are different now, but no one should feel sorry about the past. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You'll find more information on Improve the News by visiting our website, improvethenews.org, and you can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.